Hello, and welcome to this bonus edition of Boom and Bust, a podcast that looks into financial catastrophes as they brew, as they boom, and as they burst. My name is John Glover, and this is a follow-on to the previous episode of the pod, Albania, the pyramid schemes that devoured a nation. If you haven't listened to that episode, it would be worth going back and catching up. That said, a good deal of the account was based on the work of an IMF official called Chris Jarvis, and on a report he wrote after the events. That's because Albania, being small, obscure, and a danger mainly to itself, doesn't have much written about it. Now, almost three decades on from the Albanian meltdown, Chris was kind enough to agree to be interviewed about his experiences there. It's not often outsiders get a glimpse into the engine room, so to speak, of an IMF mission to a nation in distress. So I found this conversation particularly interesting. I hope you will agree. I have made some minor edits to the conversation, but nothing of substance has gone. So here we go. When did you first visit Albania? Uh, summer of 1996. Um, it was uh, uh, there's a kind of funny story associated with it. Actually, I was I was working in a different department in the IMF, and the uh, person that was in charge of Albania and a few other countries initially called and asked me if I wanted to work on Slovenia. Uh-huh. And I thought. I'm really more interested in sort of troubled countries and programs. And I thought Slovenia sounded kind of boring. Uh, So I said no to Slovenia. And then about two months later, she called me back up again and said, I don't suppose you'd be interested in Albania, would you? And I said, actually, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, So I went to work on Albania uh, and quite quickly went there on uh, on a visit. What we we call them missions. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I first went there in... um, August of 1996, um, which was quite a fateful time because it was at that point that evidence uh, was just beginning to show up in the monetary accounts uh, in Albania of the size and scope of the of the pyramid schemes. This was the was this when you were calling the press conference or something? Uh... Yeah, there was quite a there was quite a road to get to that point. Um, uh, for me, and I think in the sort of evolution of things, the, that August 1996 mission was quite pivotal. Um, and we really discovered um, the scope of the pyramid schemes and just how problematic they could be, almost by chance. Um, it's that chance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had... Um, uh, I was responsible within the team in Albania for the monetary accounts, um, which can be quite um, arcane. uh, And it's something that the IMF focuses on much more than say the World Bank or other institutions. And usually you look at the monetary accounts because it's a way of tying together what's going on in the whole economy and checking that it's consistent. Um, but there was an odd quirk in the uh, Albanian monetary accounts in that they reported they report separately in their in their accounts bank deposits by companies and bank deposits by individuals. 
And one of my first meetings in, uh, in the Bank of Albania, um, we were looking over this table and I asked, um, why, is, uh, why is it that the deposits of companies are growing so rapidly over the last couple of months, but the deposits of individuals aren't changing or, if anything, going down a bit? And the man that was in charge of the, um, the monetary statistics in, in Albania said, oh, that's the, um, that's the borrowing companies. And he described these, these companies that he said essentially took deposits from people, although they weren't banks, uh, and then invested them uh, on their own account. And he said that inflows had been large enough that they were parking their money in the bank accounts while they figured out what to do with it. And this was showing up in the monetary statistics. And as he described these and the interest rates they were offering, um, which were at that point about 6% a month compared to 15% a year for in regular banks, I listened to this and, and I remember sort of looking at him in this sort of sunny, dusty room and seeing the dust motes in the, in the air and thinking, thinking and then saying, those aren't borrowing companies, those are pyramid schemes. Um, and that was the point at which we began to really investigate these um, because we were able to see it in this odd presentation in the, in the monetary accounts. But then there was a long road between August and November um, of trying to convince people uh, in Albania that this was a problem and also trying to convince people in the IMF that this was a problem. In the IMF as well? Sure. Uh, and the background to that is that um, uh, the banks in Albania were, for the most part, rubbish. Yeah. Uh, there were a couple of foreign-owned private banks there, which were quite small, as I remember, there were the system was dominated by three state-owned banks, with a with a, a lending record so terrible um, that the central bank had imposed limits, bank by bank limits, on what they could lend. So they weren't a very good source of credit for the economy. So if I could just stop you there, when was the central bank? When did the central bank um, impose those limits, and what was that res a response to? Was it just because they were um, lending? And yeah, I think this was in 94, 95. Okay. Um, and the reason for that was because they, in the years after, um, uh, the years of the transition, they made so many bad loans. Right, yeah. The, the, um, the I think it was called the Rural Development Bank, was the worst. They made short-term loans for trucks and tractors and things like that. And, of course, they all went, none of them got repaid, or virtually none of them got repaid. Yeah. Um, and the result of that was that um, a quite vigorous informal lending market grew up. And it was mostly families or extended families gathering money together and then lending it out to specific business and things. And, and mostly the sums were in the thousands of dollars and uh, they only had a few uh, clients. They weren't banks, but they were informal borrowing companies. And they had been some of the driving force behind economic growth because they had uh, allowed credit to flourish where the banks couldn't provide it. Right. And they right. were viewed very benignly by both the IMF and the World Bank. And in 1994 and 1995, there were just the beginnings of concern that some of these might be engaged in criminal activities. 
Well, I know that. And it might be a mask for that. But, but generally, this sort of setup was regarded as quite good. And what we now think of as the pyramid schemes were just seen as an extension of that, investing on their own behalf rather than, uh, rather than lending to, to others. Uh, and most of the concerns, to the extent that there were concerns about them at all in 94 and, and 95, it was whether they might be doing money laundering or funding smuggling or something like that. Um, so uh, we, initially, uh, uh, we initially encountered quite a bit of resistance in Washington to the idea that there was a problem here. Uh, and people would ask questions like, well, couldn't there be legitimate explanations for how these companies are making money, that they actually are generating those kind of returns. Right, right. Um, and, it, and when by the time we went back in, uh, we were sufficiently concerned in August that we, le- we sent a letter to the president uh, raising our concerns and saying that these ought to be investigated mm-hmm. at that point. Um, Concern grew, and in the uh, at the annual meeting, the IMF annual meetings in October, we persuaded the Minister of Finance to issue a public warning about some of them. But he was uh, not particularly interested in doing that, uh, and he did it, but with no particular conviction. And then when we went back in November, by that time the mania had really taken hold. Uh, and you were seeing a further, very dramatic growth in the deposits of these schemes. Um, and the um, and our concerns grew, and so did those of the Central Bank of Albania, and especially their governor. Oh, right, yeah. Um, he comes across as, as a bit of the good guy in this. Is that right, or is that just... Too- yeah, I think so. I think so. He was very courageous throughout. Right. Um, and under tremendous pressure from the government, which didn't want to know about these pyramid schemes. And in in that November mission, there were two things that we did, uh, which I think were absolutely pivotal. And just just as a little bit of background, when IMF missions go out, they don't go out with a blank slate. You know, you don't have discretion to just sort of advise what you like. Uh, you have a brief, which is now called a policy note, mm-hmm. which which guides the advice that you you give, and the advi- and the our brief on the pyramid schemes was stay out of it. Um, this is not the IMS business. It's not our business to comment on the uh, on the solvency of individual companies. Um, this is something for the government to handle. It's okay to warn them about it, but that they should investigate it, but don't go beyond that. And um, uh, I was not in charge of the Albania team. I was, uh, um, uh, I was one of what they call the desk economists. And the, the man who was in charge was a guy called Ranjit Teja, who was just a, an excellent IMF mission chief who subsequently went on to be the mission chief for Korea during the, uh, during the Asian crisis and right. do various other things. But he was quite, this was, I think, his first assignment as a mission chief. Uh, um, and the two of us were going to the Bank of Albania for a meeting with the governor about what to do about the, the pyramid schemes. Because at that point, uh, some of the biggest schemes had hundreds of millions of dollars sitting in Albanian banks because they didn't know what else to do with them at that point. They hadn't kind of got around to stealing them or, or, or paying them out as interest. 
And we sat there in the car and we, we looked at each other and we're like, we're going to stick to the brief, right? We're going to stick to the brief and our advice. Just avoid giving any, any firm advice. And we got into that meeting and uh, the governor, Krishdak Luniku, was just in absolute distress. He was terribly worried about what, what was going to happen in Albania and what he could do about it, if anything. And there were just four of us in the meeting, him and his chief of staff and Ranjit and me. And as we saw him and heard what he heard what he said about this, Ranjit and I were sitting next to each other on our couch, and we both kind of looked each other at each other and kind of nodded. And then Ranjit said, "I think you should freeze the bank accounts of these companies." And that was what he did in January 1997. It took a couple of months to get the government even remotely on board with this, but it froze the bank accounts, especially of the two. The two most kind of most recent schemes that had collected a lot of money, Jafferi and Populi. Right, right. And, and as a result of that, and they, their investors were some of the poorest in, in Albania. The, the average deposit was maybe $250 in there. Okay. Um, and as a result of that, that very brave decision by the governor, um, they, those depositors got about, about half their money back, 40 to 50% of their money back. Right, right. Whereas most of the other schemes, they were lucky to get maybe 10% of their money back by the time they were all, all unrolled. The other thing we decided to do during that mission was to go public with it. Um, so at the end of the mission, we, we had a press conference, warned about these schemes and said that they should be investigated. We didn't make public the advice to... Um, uh, to freeze the deposits, obviously, at that point, because it, they could have just taken them all out. Um, uh, and on the same day that we had the press conference, the first of the schemes failed, which was um, SUDE. And from that point, the the climate of opinion began to shift. Right. I don't know. I think it was probably more the failure of SUDE than our warning, which which made the difference. But uh, but from that point, the fear replaced greed, um, and within four months, they began to collapse. So that was the, it was, it seems to me that they, they that it was the, the collapse came about sort of very slowly at first. And then all of a, all of a sudden, rather like, um, was it Fitzgerald Scott or Ernest Hemingway uh, has a character who was asked how he went broke. See, and he said, you know, very slowly. And then all of a sudden, um, is, is, is that right? Yeah. I mean, we were kind of surprised that they lasted until March especially when Sude um, had gone under. Why do you uh, think that was, that they managed to last that length of time? Um, I think that there was still a lot of belief, um, as, and perhaps especially in there being a distinction between the most recent schemes and the older schemes. Uh-huh. Um, what was that distinction? But, well, people thought, uh, and people recognised that schemes that were offering to double your money in two months or treble your money in three months, that that wasn't a sustainable business model. And I mean, there were a lot of there were a lot of small investors who were like, "Great, everybody's making money; we can get some." But there were also bigger investors in those who were basically playing the greater fool theory. Right. We were, right. The more will come in, and then we'll get the money out. Right. And they they were more or less 
ceased operations in January when the government, well, sorry, when the central bank froze the, the bank accounts. But the other big ones continued to argue that they were solvent businesses. They still, um, they didn't have any problem. Um, and, that, and again, that goes back to one of the, one of the other reasons why, why they had flourished in the first place and also why people didn't immediately recognize that these returns were unsustainable, which is that quite a few of them, and especially probably the biggest, Veffa, um, was reputedly heavily involved in smuggling into Serbia. Right. So that, in our view, another critical event in the, in the evolution of the pyramid schemes was the end of UN sanctions for Serbia in December 1995. Um, that that essentially, if, if that was what Vefa was doing, it destroyed their business model. Right. Um, so, um, but there was still that belief that some of these companies were legitimate. They were just, they were just very profitable companies. And it was only when they, when they um, began to not be able to pay their depositors that the bubble completely burst and they, right. uh, and they all went then very quickly in March. Right. Did uh, I mean? Did the did the view of what was going on? Presumably, it did change. But the view of the IMF, the kind of institutional view of the situation in Albania. I mean, how would you characterize it at the beginning? It sounds like it was like, oh well, you know, it's fine, uh, and then it changed to, oh my God, what's going to happen? But, I mean, how would you characterize it? Well, um, I mean, the institution as opposed, you, yeah. Yeah, well, Albania was was viewed as a country that had a successful track record, and there was a certain amount of celebration of Albania's successful track record and support for the Berisha government. But already by um, ninety five, early nineteen ninety six, the relationship had soured a bit, um, um, because of uh, essentially a pre election spending spree by the government which drove up the fiscal deficit. And the view was, we can't have a program with this country. It needs to get the fiscal deficit up. It would need to get the fiscal deficit under control, and it's not going to do that until after the parliamentary elections. So when I moved to Albania, this was kind of predicated on Berisha's party winning the presidential elections and then negotiating another IMF program. And that was the general assumption. the, the elections were uh, heavily contested, let's say, and, and generally regarded as having been rigged. So that made it, that kind of interfered with that mechanism so that you know, the government could no longer move towards um, tighter fiscal policy, for example, because its position was very fragile. Right, right. Um, and then we also discovered the pyramid schemes. Uh, and that became a major obstacle for us. But as in that same November mission, while we were doing this on this work, exploring what was going on with the pyramid schemes, we were also negotiating with the Ministry of Finance on measures they could take to bring down the government deficit. And it was a pretty futile negotiation because they weren't in a position to do it. And it was, and it was kind of epitomized. Uh, there was a moment, you know, Tense negotiations sometimes kind of descend into farce. And um, uh, and this one was compounded by the fact that many on the Albanian side, including, I think, the minister, didn't speak English. So we, we were doing it all through interpreters. 
And at some point, all of the Albanian officials started talking animatedly among themselves and kind of laughing. And um, we asked the interpreter, you know, what's going, what are they talking about? And she said, uh, they're figuring out how long they'd have to put money, money in with the gypsy woman to raise enough money to close the deficit. <laughs> so there's kind of that level of absurdity uh, in it as they began to realize that you know, some of this was crazy. And actually there was uh, one of the schemes was the, run by a gypsy woman, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, um, Sudan. Um, yeah. And I, I thought it was, I, I thought it was quite telling actually. I mean, I'm sure her scheme was just as criminal as the rest of them, but it, it, it left us left a bit of a bad taste that for a long time, she was the only one that went to prison. Right, you know? right, right. And it's kind of easy to pick on the gypsy woman rather Absolutely, than much no, more connected no. people. Of course. Um, but one of the things I, I, I noticed, and again, uh, you, you just said it, that Albania was doing very well. The transition was going great by the lights of um, the IMF, uh, the, in the IMF's view. The IMF is not popular among many people, especially those who are receiving its advice. Um, but there is this behind us, this... Um, Washington consensus and I was just wondering again I mentioned it in the in the podcast uh, to what extent was I, the IMF not giving Albania a pass but maybe treating it more gently uh, and closing its eyes to massive corruption uh, to uh, threats of violence and so on uh, because it was yeah it was making an effort to it was within the consensus I mean you said no you don't think so but could you explain yeah um, I mean, there's a certain amount of grading on a curve in the, in the sense that when you have a country that at the time was as underdeveloped in, in institutional terms as Albania was, um, we didn't think it would be realistic to hold them to very high standards of governance, for example. Right, makes sense. And, and it's also, you know, looking back on things that happened 25 years ago, governance is considered much more important in IMF programs now than it was in the mid 1990s. Okay, yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a little bit of that. I think also, I mean, Albania had a good track record, but without the without a continuation of good macroeconomic policies, they weren't going to get a program, even without the pyramid schemes. So, um, in, a, in a sense, the Berisha government was al already disappointing no, the yeah. IMF. Um, and there wasn't a great deal of goodwill at that time. Uh, there had been a very close relationship at one point between um, Sally Berisha, the president, and the then managing director of the IMF, Michel Camdesu. Like Camdesu had spent Christmas with Berisha at one point yeah. in, in Albania. But that, even that had already cooled. And at some point in all of this, Berisha called up Camdesu asking for support. And, um, uh, and Camdesu um, said the kind of things that a very politically suave person says on the phone, but then turned to the guy in charge of Albania and said, you sort this shit out. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. So... Looking back on it, and this is an unfair question, I guess, 
because of the distance in time and, and so on. But what would you have done differently, do you think, and what the IMF would have done differently now as to what it did then? What were the, what were the major changes? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, obviously it would have been good to have got into this earlier and warned about it earlier. So you think um, that this should have gone public earlier? No, I mean, been aware, really asked close questions about what was going on before August 1996, because right. by that time it was already in full, in full flow. Um, and there was perhaps a too uncritical ac acceptance of the idea that in these informal borrowing and lending was, was probably okay. Um, I mean, the other thing I think is in the cleanup. The cleanup was extraordinarily painful. Yeah. Uh, and um, it was a kind of, big call to seize the bank accounts of the or freeze the bank accounts of these two companies um i think it would have been better much better if they'd frozen the bank accounts of all of the companies right and move, move much more aggressively to uh to try to contain the to essentially to block sale of assets or uh um or the um you know bring, taking things out of the country um, but, there were, but there were real limits on what the IMF could do on that uh, because we didn't have a program relationship. When we, by the time we did have a program relationship, there was explicit conditionality on appointing external auditors um, to, to do a proper audit of the schemes and redistribute the remaining assets. Right, right. Uh, so, you know, I wish that had been better, but... Actually, even there in the circumstances, I'm not sure that it, it could have been much better. I, I'm basically fairly happy with the role that, that the fund played in it. I think, I think we were right to give the public warning in November. It would have been difficult to give it before then, before we knew with a bit more certainty what was going on. Um, but maybe some failures of intelligence gathering in the, in the couple of years before that. Right. Um, yeah, the pyramid scheme in, in, in schemes in Albania were enormous. I mean, it was one of the more dramatic examples, but they're not alone. Um, transition economies seem to be very susceptible to um, these, uh, this kind of easy money scheme. What's going on there? What, how do you, I mean, you can, yeah. Uh, why why are they so susceptible to this sort of um, criminality? Um, I'm not, I'm not sure I agree with the premise. Actually, okay. I mean they're they're kind of more visible there. I mean you you think of Ponzi schemes and you think of Caritas maybe in Romania, MMM in Russia, right. the Albanian schemes. There haven't been a lot of big ones since that I'm aware of, but the small ones that you know, percolate around. But uh, and you know, one argument that people made is, well, the Albanian public weren't very sophisticated um, and weren't used to modern financial instruments. But in fact, people are perfectly everywhere are perfectly capable of falling for these kind of things. Oh yeah, it's I mean, you look at the, you look at uh, multi-level marketing schemes in the West, for example. Um, 
which is what most people think of as pyramid schemes. Yeah. Uh, and it, arguably the um, uh, the ones in Albania should have been more properly called Ponzi schemes, but yeah, everybody did the, the terminology of pyramid schemes. But they also rely on that same kind of gullibility. Um, uh, and even you know, things in Western financial markets, you know, you look at the you look at the, the housing collapse in the US and the finance and the global financial crisis. The origins of that lay in um, a financial model which is which is clearly unsustainable when you look at it in retrospect, but didn't appear so at the time. So um, I think maybe the particular manifestation of it reflected the Albanian characteristics, the the problems with the formal banking system, um, the proximity of uh, the Balkan Wars, um, and the kind of toleration of illegality, which uh, which which operated around that. Um, but I don't think there were, I don't think there was anything unique to to Albania about the impulse to get rich quick or to um, no, no, uh, um, or to be fooled by um, by promises. Um, and I think I think it's a pretty universal thing. Right. Uh, fair enough. Um, I mean, again, you might one might point out that uh, the biggest ever was uh, Bernie Madoff, the United States. The only yeah. the, big, the big difference though is uh, Bernie Madoff was uh, the, the scheme was enormous in absolute terms, but as a percentage of the com, com, as the GDP was a pinprick. Right. Whereas yeah. it, this was like forty percent of Albania's GDP, if I'm not mistaken, these mm -hmm. schemes were nearly half of the, yeah. uh, which is just um, uh, it mind-bogglingly really. Uh, but still, yeah, I take your point that uh, if everybody is getting rich quick, why won't why aren't why aren't I? Yeah, and um, you said uh, in an email that we. Uh, uh, that pyramid schemes are in one sense the epitome of wild west, west capitalism uh you mentioned the south sea bubble right which is uh mm -hmm. which i'm quite fond of yeah uh, yeah maybe you'd like to talk about that for a minute yeah yeah i enjoyed the podcast your podcast on the south sea bubble by the way oh, that's a lot of fun um yeah i, I mean in, in one sense it's, it looks like naked capitalism but there's Often the hook which pulls people in uh, is some real or imagined link with government, with a government decision. And the South Sea bubble, I mean, a couple of aspects of that seemed to me. One was the, um, uh, uh, the purchase of government debt yep. uh, that was involved in that, which gives it you know, some kind of veneer of legality and also veneer of, um, you know, that they're, they're somehow working hand in hand with the government. Um, and similarly, well, they the, were the South Sea bubble. They certainly were. That was the whole point, wasn't it? They were, right? And it was the government. This was a right. this was a government and, scheme, and also granting of monopoly privileges. You know, yeah. of of as it turned out, not very much value. But <laughs> um, uh, but you can see why people might have thought, oh, great, you know, this will be fine. Um, the Ponzi scheme, the the original Charles Ponzi scheme, actually, the that the kind of hook of that one was a little bit of um, a, a, an inconsistency in the, uh, in the ex, I think it was the exchange rate valuation or the, the cost of international mailing of like stamps between Europe and the US. 
And his initial hook was that he was arbitraging that. Oh, nice. <laughs> and in fact, you know, he did almost none of that. And the volume of that was, it was there, all right, the opportunity for arbitrage, but it was tiny well, right. compared to the, the money that he took in. And I think in Albania, um, what, I, what I saw there was you know, the, they, were, they had the appearance of a profitable business model because of the prevalence of smuggling into Serbia, particularly gasoline smuggling. Yeah. And people thought, okay, they should, you know, it's not, it's not legal, but here in Albania, we regard this as fine. This is, um, this is not this is a problem. Uh, sorry? This is what we do. This is yeah. how we roll. <laughs> yeah. yeah, indeed. Um, uh, and, I, and I think, you know, quite, quite a few of the, of the get-rich-quick schemes often rely on some, some real or imagined um, loophole in the law, say. Right. And of course, it's kind of... It's, I'm looking startled because the cat just got out. I'm <laughs> just being recovered. I <laughs> just saw it through the window. Um, the... Um, uh, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought now. Um, Albania and the Balkans. Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, I, uh, I was wondering what you meant about the cat. <laughs> so I... Yeah, no, no, an actual cat. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thinking, not, not supposed to be outside. Um, well, as long as you're not on the 16th floor or something. No, but it's very young. It's not supposed to go out yet. Um, so pause it. we can pause this if you want to. And you can go it's okay. Down. My wife. I saw my wife going and getting it. Okay. So, so it's okay. Um, so I you know I don't have a lot of hard evidence other than that, but I but I think often. If you do, I think perhaps psychologically, if you just tell somebody I've got this great opportunity for you uh, that sounds too good to be true, it sounds a little less too good to be true if you can peg it to some loophole in the law or taking advantage of a regulation. Um, right. Um, uh, and, um you know the regulatory framework in Albania was was not great because it was in in an early stage of capitalism, if you like. Right, right, right. Okay. Well, um, I think that's probably the main areas. I think that um, we agreed that we'd talk about. We won't talk about other aspects of your uh, career with Diamond. Is there stuff that I've missed that you'd like to? Uh... Um, you think. I mean, there's one thing that, that struck me as, as sort of worth noting about the dynamics of the Albanian schemes uh, was that you think of pyramid schemes as uh, and sort of financial manias as universally leading to loss of money. Right. But one of the things that um, that we kind of unearthed as we as, as we sort of thought about a model of pyramid schemes is that there are quite a few people that make money out of Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Not yeah. only the owners who obviously steal a fair amount, um, but also sometimes those early investors relying on the greater fool theory are successful. Yeah. You know, they go in, they make some money, they get out again and watch, watch others take the losses. Yeah. Um, so there are these kind of re redistributional effects um, of, 
uh, of these kind of manias um, uh, yep. as well. Um, and that struck me as an, an interesting aspect of the uh, of the Albanian experience. Yeah. The the other thing that I guess the other thing the point that I would want to make is that um, I think the IMF did fairly well in this in handling this crisis, and I think we were able to be helpful. But what really made the difference in containing it and then recovering from it was the actions of some really courageous um, government officials. Um, and I think in, in particular, Kristak Luniku, the, um, the governor of the central bank at crucial times, and then also uh, in the cleanup part of things, the new minister of finance, Arben Malai, um, who often at personal risk took very difficult decisions to insist that these companies be wound up, um, uh, that, they, that they didn't get away with any more of the assets, and also insist that the state um, was not going to bail out either the companies or their depositors, were not going to make them whole, right. because that would have led to, yeah. to a massive burst of inflation and probably hyperinflation in Albania and left left everybody much worse off. Um, and so, you know, if occasionally, uh, you know, it's easy to sound derisive about a government of a country that lets companies get away with something like this, but there were individuals within that government and quite a few of them who cared about the country and who took the kind of steps, took the did the best they could to limit the damage. Right. Um, and that was really what made sort of both helping people and also helping them was what really made the Albanian experience something that sticks in my memory as something really important and worthwhile. Although there was um, a descent into near civil war, which wasn't great, a great outcome. Plus, in the, um, the, I thought you, uh, when you mentioned that there were actors that deserve praise, I thought you were going to uh, mention the um, Italians who led a a pacification uh, expedition. They did. Yeah, they did. Um, uh, I mean, I imagine they had their own national interests oh, uh, in mind. They did. <laughs> but but they did a good job, and uh, and other institutions did did as well. Yeah, but the good thing, I suppose, good thing about it was that they they left. The Italians. Yeah. Didn't try. They didn't try and stay. They sort of did the job and went off again. It was quite, uh, which makes a change yeah. from pre-war uh, expeditions. We won't talk about that. <laughs> anyway, look, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me um, and to give us the benefit of your experience. And um, one day I'll be able to buy you a drink uh, in, uh, in acknowledgement of the uh, yeah. contribution. Uh, thank you very much again and speak to you soon. Thank you for listening, and once again, thanks to Chris Jarvis for taking the time to chat. My apologies for the lengthy gap between the latest episodes. I have been trying to locate a book about the events of the episode I plan to cover next. Um, I say a book, I should say the book about it. A great deal of, um, has been written about the significance of the event, but not much about what actually happened leading up to it. However, the book has now been hunted down and acquired, and I am wading through it. 
An episode will appear in due course, so stay tuned for that. In the interim, thanks once again for listening, and thanks to Clive Carroll for the music. Please do rate and review the show wherever you get it, and see you next time.